the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Heart of Innovation. 60 minutes that can save life and limb with new breakthrough ideas and innovation changing the healthcare landscape. Brought to you by patient advocacy group, thewaytomyheart.org. In partnership with Cardiovascular System Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation. Here are your hosts for the Heart of Innovation, Emmy Award-winning journalist and founder of The Way to My Heart, Kim McNicholas, and interventional cardiologist and founder of the Save My Piggies Health Education Series, Dr. John Phillips. April is Limb Difference Awareness Month, so we are focusing on a big problem you may not be aware of in America. Did you know more than 2 million people in America are limb different, meaning they have had an amputation for one medical reason or another? However, 60% of those amputees do not have a prosthesis and remain immobile, unfortunately. Paul Kent, founder and CEO of the Disabled Life Alliance, hopes to change that with a new prosthesis for every limb initiative. During this episode, he will talk about the gaps in care for amputees and his strategy to help ensure all who desire to be mobile can get back on their feet and thrive limb difference. So an exciting show ahead. John, we are coming off a big trip to Italy where we got to meet in person for the first time. That was so much fun. It was amazing to actually see you physically. <laughs> it was surreal. Like, she exists because it's been now almost. She a does year. exist. She's not AI. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I Yes. And I think we're going to be talking a little bit about AI during the show. But yeah, that was a that was a, a fun um, experience, obviously great, great conference that we were able to attend, learned a lot. Um, we had that fun gondola ride. <laughs> yeah. With, with the guy who sang a, maybe a phrase from a Disney song and then chatted the entire time with every other gondola. What do you call them? Driver? <laughs> the gondole, I think they're gondoliers or something like this, but it, it amazed me how um, we were in Venice, Italy and that whole obviously there's no cars and uh, everybody navigates either walking or via yeah. boat. But the fact that those gondolas, I mean, those guys can maneuver in and out between. I mean, how many times did you think you were going to get hit and then you didn't or whatever? It was. It was. And they were uh, calm. They were they calm the whole time. But it's almost like being in a surgical procedure and watching someone like you or a couple of the other pioneers that were at the conference, Dr. Marco Monzi and Dr. Mario Polenia. It was called the CLI you know, Global Courses, where people were learning about the newest advanced tools and techniques. But no matter what's happening during those procedures, you all just operate with such calm and finesse. You can't imagine that the case is complex. You can't imagine that there might be something going wrong because it's like, oh, blood pressure is up. Do this. Oh, we have a little bit of a bleed. Oh, just do this. Same even keeled. 
just as these gondola gondoliers were doing as they tried to navigate those tough waters. Uh, yeah, you just again, I think life is about experience Sorry. and repetition. And, um, you know, when you are involved in something that is a little bit where uh, there's a, a stress threshold that may be higher than you'd like, you, you have to keep your cool because if you lose your cool, then those around you start to lose it and the wheels proverbially start to come off and it just doesn't help anybody out. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was it's it's always fun to learn from other people and and uh, again if I tried to drive a or steer a gondolier I would have that thing destroyed but um, those guys are, are experts just like uh, we'd like to think we are in the in the cat lab. <laughs> so true. So what do you say that we get this started in a yeah. seamless fashion so the wheels don't come off during this show? Um, one moment of inspiration. What do you think? I'm ready. Dr. John Phillips, spectacular, vascular moment of inspiration. Here we go. All right. Thanks, producer Mike and and Colin, who's uh, learning as well today. So, uh, you know, I was looking since we're talking about amputation and amputees. I did a little bit of research on some some famous people that have had had amputees. And uh, so Ella Fitzgerald, for example, when three years before she died, she lost both of her limbs to, quote, complications from diabetes, which I have to assume, and I'm just assuming that it was probably related to uh, peripheral arterial disease and, and critical right. limb, limb ischemia. Um, so she had a lot of quotes, obviously very famous, but I found this one, a, a lot of the quotes I like about inspiration and not giving up, and, and that's kind of what the heart of uh, her quote is. She says, just don't give up trying to do what you really want to do. Where there is love and inspiration, I don't think you can go wrong. So learning a little bit about Paul and his journey as the double amputee to now what running the Boston Marathon next week. Talk about not giving up and having inspiration. Uh, it's going to be a great show, and I can't wait to to hear more about his story. Yeah, I want to bring Paul in because that is that is really a powerful quote that seems like the perfect way to kick off the show. It's, it sounds almost like it would be your mantra, Paul. Well, yes, but I think she's spot on. You know, it, it, that, that love comment, uh, it, it takes a community, right? When you're when you're in uh, a crisis mode or, or dealing with something chronic or, you know, uh, heavy, uh, it takes a community. So I, I certainly um, am blessed with having that. And I think all of us on this call are blessed because we're participating in this community. So it's a, it's, yeah. it's a, very appropriate uh, uh, nugget of, of information from a beautiful person, right? So, but let's uh, start off and talk about some of how your journey, you know, truly began to move on into developing an organization that has these initiatives that are helping amputees and others in the disabled community. Um, you were on Wall Street at one point. You were kicking butt, and then you know, take us from there. Yeah, so um, uh, the, the, the full context is that I was one of nine children uh, raised in Southern California. And uh, after graduating from college, I headed off to a, um, a career on Wall Street, uh, which was exciting because we were kind of a renegade firm uh, based in L.A. Uh, and so I kind of learned early on that challenging conventional wisdom and thinking outside the box uh, was a good thing. But it also was volatile and led for, uh, you know, ups and downs, uh, failures and successes. But um, 
I did that for uh, 25 odd years. And in uh, 2008, I had the great uh, ability to quasi-retire. Uh, I was commuting the prior four years, uh, two days a week to New York, uh, raising two sons in Marin, California, where we're from. Uh-huh. And um, it was about that same time when I retired and I and uh, I had some downtime. I was started really ramping up my uh, uh, physical training and I was training for triathlons and doing a bunch of different things. And uh, I've always known that um, my family and my siblings and I all suffered from a genetic neuropathy, but it was never much more for any of us than uh, loss of sensation, um, nothing really more than that. And, and coming up uh, right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to hear a little bit more about this genetic neuropathy and what symptoms he was experiencing, how it affected his life, and why he decided that, you know what? I don't want to deal with this or the complications anymore, and I'm going to go for bilateral amputations. So the story continues, so stay with us. Leg health can indicate risk for heart attack, stroke, and amputation. If you have leg pain or cramps while walking, get checked for peripheral artery disease, or PAD. PAD is plaque buildup in mainly the leg arteries. Be sure to ask your physician for an ankle brachial index, also called an ABI test, where they use blood pressure cuffs to analyze the blood pressure in your legs. If they discover you have arterial plaque that's limiting blood flow to your feet, medicine and a regimented walking program are frontline treatment. If PAD is in its advanced stages, your physician may schedule a surgical intervention. Minimally invasive tools are available to remove plaque and restore blood flow, including cardiovascular system's Diamondback 360 atherectomy system, which sands away plaque that is a hard calcium. It's important to discuss all options with your physician, and if told you have no options, get a second opinion. Take a stand against amputation. For more information, go to standagainstamputation.com. That's standagainstamputation.com. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining us. We're continuing our conversation with Paul Kent, who was about to tell us that he... So you were born with a genetic neuropathy. All of your eight other siblings had the same problem, yes. so to speak. Yes. And and it initially just kind of manifested or you thought it was going to the, the I guess you thought the worst it's going to be is just some lack of sensation issues. Or did you feel like it was yes. going to get to the point where you had to go to what you did? Well, I was number seven out of nine, so I had a little pathway of what was coming in the sense of the, the lack of sensation. And that was the predominant uh, complaint, if you will, from... Is it uh, hands and legs? or no, hands just, lo- just lower extremity. Just lower, okay. And um, and uh, my older siblings you know, complained about that, but never had anything uh, major. Nobody had anything really major in terms of... Uh, um, um, you know, the ability to heal or, or, or such. Um, but in 2009, I had my first episode of, of not having a wound heal uh, ideally, and I ended up getting osteomyelitis and a toe. And that was the now, first. Is, sorry to interrupt, but is this from, because you mentioned that you're an endurance athlete or doing some, a lot of training, not like, is that from part of your training or was it yeah. just okay. most of my most of my wounds came from uh, self-inflicted, if you will, in the sense yes. of uh, activities and, you know, and not having sensation. So you didn't know your 
you know, your sock was rubbing on your, on your shoe and there, or you had wet, so- you know, all those types of things. So I, I, I right. got used to varying, uh, like a diabetic, very, uh, right. most of us could, if we could feel that something was starting or something was rubbing or the like, we would actually stop the activity or we would fix it. But since you didn't feel it, it, it just right. kept progressing. And that goes, and that goes with pain that goes, you know, with everything. Right. Um, um, so it, uh, 2009, I had that. And then, you know, kind of paid more attention, but uh, uh, it really was in 2013. Uh, I had a bunch of wound issues, you know, slower wound healing. I, I would go to preemptively between 2009 and 2013, go to um, wound care quickly, right, in terms of getting on top of it. And it wasn't, wasn't so bad. It would just take a little time. But in 2013, I had a wound, uh, again, from a trail run, uh, and that, uh, within 48 hours, manifested it in, uh, to my first battle of uh, serious infection, went right into surgery, uh, of battling uh, early stage you know, sepsis and the rest of it, um, and a two-month hospital stay, came home with wow. less of my foot, uh, and it, it was both feet um, uh, that were affected, but the, uh, the right foot in this situation. And that started a pathway of the next basically ten years of. Um, okay, so so did you continue to run and do your endurance athletics, or was this like the light going I, off? Like, okay, I probably should stop this. So I well, my in a way, yes. Bubble wrap on your foot. Don't continue yeah. on the path you are. Don't don't live your life and do everything you love. Right. And, and it, well, you know, that's the, 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 the you know, the, the medical uh, suggestion. Right. Uh, and that's coming from uh, infectious disease and, and other folks that were around it at that time. But you think about it. When you, when you become less mobile, and less active, there's a lot of repercussions. And, and for me, mentally, that was a really big challenge because I was always kind of endurance, you know, had that adrenaline junkie kind of thing. And not to be able to do that or slow down. So I tried different things and tried to, you know, and I was very diligent about watching. But the between the neuropathy probably intensifying is what we hypothesize at this point. Really can't tell. Um, uh, things would go bad fast. So even the simplest of wounds would turn into a pretty massive wound issue. But at the same time, an infection that was born in the foot would go osteomyelitis through the foot and into the, into the leg um, so that became the challenge in being allergic to penicillin protocol for fighting infections. I was becoming growing resistant. So it was kind of almost a, uh, every, every six months, you could pretty much guarantee I was hospitalized. Uh, and again, because I wasn't diabetic, the different treatments that were available to me per insurance were different than if I was diabetic. I mean, it got so desperate that one physician is, is was throwing his hands up, you know, uh, diagnosed as diabetic. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, John, to to hear this story, you know, based on where you and I come from, where when someone has a diabetic wound or or the like, they we assume it's the lack of blood flow, the lack of getting oxygen to help heal that wound that comes to mind first. And it's really odd to hear a situation where he has enough blood flow, but yet he still can't get these wounds that are appearing to actually heal. So coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, I want to get John's thoughts on that. And we are going to continue with Paul's story and hear how he's managing to run the Boston Marathon coming up in a couple weeks with his son. So stay with us. 
Medical Notepad brought to you by Cardiovascular Systems Incorporated's patient advocacy campaign, Take a Stand Against Amputation and The Weight of My Heart. My name is Marco Manzi. I'm an interventional radiologist and I'm involved since 1998 in treatment of BAD. So this week for Medical Notepad, I'm going to talk about vessel preparation. Why vessel preparation? Because uh, we discover in the last uh, at, at least five years that preparing the vessel results crucial in the acute outcome and midterm outcome of our procedure of revascularization. Of course, we are speaking of endovascular revascularization, we can prepare the vessel for stenting, for angioplasty, for uh, drug elution. So I mean the use of uh, drug eluting balloons, for example, but even for uh, a simple angioplasty. What does it mean, prepare the vessel? Uh, if we have a, an occluded vessel and we are speaking of a vessel of the leg, of course, but when we decide to reopen, recanalize this vessel, we have to take into account the amount of calcium we have in this vessel, and we have to try to, uh, like uh, in a gallery, to, to create a space, to recreate the space of the channel of these pipes uh, from the top of the occlusion to the end. So we can inflate the balloon simply trying to uh, move side by side the uh, the material we have inside, or we can try to remove the material. To remove the material, we, we may try to use what we call the atherectomy device. The atherectomy device, of course, could be rotational, directional, orbital, the mechanism is always the same, remove the material, or we can try to crack the calcium to create microfracture in the back through the microfractures, or with less calcium, less material inside, we can inflate the balloon, a balloon, on the balloon there is a drug, there is a, uh, we call medicated, so there is a medication uh, uh, this drug uh, can pass from the balloon into the vessel layer, internal layer, in order to reduce the possibility uh, to have an hyperplasia, a reactive hyperplasia uh, to the ve- from the vessel uh, that in the future may recreate a restenotic lesion or reocclusion uh, in in that in that area. This vessel preparation permit to receive uh, a balloon with low pressure, so with no fracture of the vessel or um, detachment uh, of uh, one layer or more layers in the vessel. Um, and we don't want this. There is a difference uh, between the use of a directomy device, which is not painful at all, compared to uh, high-pressure angioplasty. High-pressure means up to 30 
three zero atmospheres. If we think we inflate uh, the tires of a car is uh, 2.5 atmospheres in the front and three in the back, we use 30 atmospheres. So 30 atmospheres is uh, a very huge pressure and could be very painful for the patient. So that's why a proper use of this device, a proper use of the vessel preparation, so less pressure, and we permit the drug arrive into the internal part of the vessel and we can prolong the patency of that uh, vessel. Of course, every vessel preparation procedure needs more time than a normal angiopsy. We have to invest time, we have to spend time uh, in order to to have better results in the future. So this is Medical Notepad, this is Dr. Patelanzi. Remember, the advice and views offered during this series are for informational and educational purposes only. Always ask your own healthcare provider for explicit consent before acting on any information provided here. If you want more information on peripheral artery disease, go to standagainstamputation.com. And for real-time support, go to thewaytomyheart.org. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Before we went to the break, Kim, you had asked me to, I guess, kind of describe the, the notion of having a wound that isn't necessarily related to, to lack of blood flow. It's not uncommon for me as a vascular interventionalist to see a patient that's referred to me that has a wound, but they have good, adequate blood flow. Uh, Oftentimes, folks with diabetes have poor blood flow and wounds, but they can also just have wounds and poor healing uh, to a wound because of their their diabetes uh, as it changes the whole uh, wound healing process. And Paul, that's, I mean, you're a non-diabetic you said during the break, too, you had a, an extensive vascular workup, so no vascular issues. But it was just, what, getting to the point where you kept getting recurrent wounds, They were in, and it was, it was getting to the point where you're either going to potentially lose your life or have to, to choose to lose a leg or both legs. Yeah, it got to a point, you know, where we're trying to figure it out, right, because, because I wasn't diabetic. So there wasn't an explanation, didn't know what you were dealing with, right? <clears throat> and each progressively, over time, it got worse in terms of uh, uh, the frequency and the intensity, <laughs> if you will. Um, and so it, uh, uh, it got to a point where, too, you know, from, a, from an infection, that was the bigger thing. Probably the bigger thing was the fact that the infection onset was so fast and so intense um, uh, as a result of the wound issue that that's where my, my fear became. Uh, every time I had a boo-boo, I called it, <laughs> uh, my immediate mindset was, it's and, just and, gonna be the infection and, that would and I imagine you are as time is progressing, you're becoming less and less mobile. You're clearly not doing what you wanted right. to do from an exercise standpoint. So take us into your mind if you can, the night before so you just you you're like, Okay, I need to have amputations here. You you guys have made that decision with your doctors and and you can share with us the whole the whole research process that you went into but i guess i'm just curious like how do you wrap your mind around the fact that 
you're going to bed with two legs and then tomorrow morning you're going into surgery and you're not going to have your legs anymore. Well, so it started in 2018. That was, uh, that was, I had a very serious episode then that put me near death in terms of infection and, and whatnot. And by that time I had no toes left. I had these residual limbs and that's when it really started to trigger me. And when I suggested to my team of doctors that I was currently working with at that time, that you know we proactively, because we knew that the neuropathy was isolated from my just above my ankles down. That was cons- consistently tested, so it wasn't migrating. So I said, "Why don't we just get rid of these things? Because an infection is going to kill me. These feet are not ideal anyway." <laughs> yeah, uh, and they're preventing you from doing the the sports and activities and everything right. that you want so to be doing, it, and you're spending all your time in the hospital. Exactly. And it was uh, a team member um, recommended that uh, that was fairly extreme and uh, recommended that I see a psychiatrist. So I saw a psychiatrist. And let let me just wrap my head around that. You came up with I mean, like this was your idea. You're of sound mind and body, obviously a successful man. And they felt like, whoa, maybe he's become unhinged. Is that what or did they just Uh, want to make sure they they kind of dotted every I and crossed the T's before we did this. Yes. And part of it is because I had doctors, you know, in my care that were fascinated, if you will, by, by the oddity of my, my, my situation. So I wanted to get to the bottom and feeling like a, a, a limb, you know, a removal like that was a pretty extreme thing. I, you know, so I happily did because I had a lot of, Dark periods, you know, over that ten-year sure. period too. So, you know, my, my mental stability probably really was a concern, which was right. Um, so I did, and a couple of visits and my medical records, and it made perfect sense. And uh, by the uh, stroke of lots of luck, um, what I was doing in, in early nineteen, uh, soon thereafter, that eighteen episode, which was in the fourth quarter, um, I became aware of uh, of a new procedure that was going out on out here in Boston. Uh, about that. And it was a study and got involved in it. Uh, and, um, it became very practical. So I had to go through a pre-op conversation with the the surgeon that invented the surgery. So it was a time period. There was a long time period, uh, that existed before, uh, I walked into surgery and, and, and did this. So I was fully prepared, uh, and quite honestly, very excited. This was supposed to happen. Uh, my pre-op workup week was supposed to be in March of 20, and my surgery in May of 20 and uh, COVID. COVID put us back and I got another wound and I was just waiting for that to. So it was, I fortunately got out here in the fall of 20. And once I was out here in Boston, I knew I was under the care of that, that team. And it felt very comfortable. And I had my surgery on December 1st. I walked in, I literally walked into surgery. I walked from the Airbnb that I, my sister and family members were renting near the hospital four o'clock in the morning uh, I walked in with two shoes on, which is the first th- first time in 10 years I ever wore two shoes at the same time. I was always in a boot or a cast offloading a wound. Uh, I was never in the same two shoes. Uh, got to the hospital. Uh, the right foot that had a wound was bleeding um, and literally walked in. And um, I-, I was very comfortable and content with, with what was going on. Woke up. Uh, and, you know, I, was like, I had a lot of. I had a psychiatrist, a psychiatrist uh, as part of this team here, and she said, yeah. you know, you're going to wake up one day and you're going to say, oh, my God, what have I done? And I can honestly say 26 months later, I have yet to wake up and have that that happen. 
Really? What, because, I mean, because of the quality of life that I've had now since then um, has been uh, amazing. And that's, that leads into why am I doing what I'm doing? Well, I've had this optimal outcome considering the situation, right? That to me should be standard of care. But it's not. But it's not. So now we need to reverse engineer it. And, you know, unfortunately, I'm, uh, you know, here in Boston with a lot of innovation, a lot of brilliance. And because of the Boston bombing, a lot of those institutional walls went down in response to that, and especially around limb preservation and trauma. And so all these institutions that were doing things on their own were collaborating. And I think that's why I, my, my outcome has been so amazing is that that patient-centric, uh, multidisciplinary, multi-institutional care really is operating here. So here you are, you have had bilateral below-the-knee or BTKA or below-the-knee amputations, and you're actually, you're excited where you're at, you're thriving, you're thrilled to get back to your life and everything is in order. At what point did you discover that this experience was not the norm? And from there deciding you wanted to do something about it? Well, I knew I knew going in it wasn't the norm because I was the uh, 18th patient to undergo this procedure. <clears throat> um, I was the first bilateral, and I was the first what they classified as non-traumatic, meaning I walked in. I didn't have an injury or an episode, uh, an emergent one that that got me there. Um, so I, I, you know, I kind of knew, you know, what to expect and where we were going with it. Um, it, it was. Um, you know, for me, it was it was the beginning of a new process. Coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, we're going to hear about this new process, his strategy to help bring prosthesis to the, so many amputees across America who are going without. So stay with us right here on the show. Ago, my symptoms started with leg pain and leg cramps while walking. Me too, with a tightness in my calves. Well, do you know, my doctor thought that my leg cramps were a side effect of the statin he prescribed me. Well, my doctor just brushed them off as another symptom of old age. Mine thought the pain was radiating from my spine. My doctor blamed my neuropathy on diabetes until I got a wound on my foot that just wouldn't heal. Yeah, it turns out we all have peripheral artery disease, also known as PAD. It's plaque buildup mainly in the leg arteries causing poor circulation. For me, the diagnosis came too late and I lost my leg, but that does not have to happen to you. No, it does not because there are treatment options available if you're diagnosed early enough. PAD. Peripheral artery disease. If you've been experiencing leg pain, leg cramps, or neuropathy when walking, and your doctor isn't hearing you, we are. We are the way to my heart, the largest support network for peripheral artery disease patients, and we want to help you get back on your feet again. Visit our website at thewaytomyheart.org or call our LegSaver hotline, 415-320-7138. Your life and limb could depend on it. Welcome back to the Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Welcome back, everybody. So, Paul, 
you now have both lost both legs and by what sounds like some serendipity were part of a research study to have a new surgery which has changed your life and you decided okay uh this isn't the standard of care i'm going to do something about it you start disabled life alliance right walk us through that yeah so i I, you know i became i knew going into my surgery that i was very fortunate right i was part of research uh research that was collaborative between harvard and mit and mass general brigham and uh, 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 other institutions. So I knew I was in good care and I, and it was obvious because when I got here it was the first time in my journey that I really felt like a patient that all, all eyes were on and coordinated around. So it was comfortable. And so I, I knew I was, I was fortunate that way. Uh, but pre-op I was, I was, my expectations were put out to me that you'd be seven to 14 days in the hospital You'd be three to four weeks in rehabilitation. Uh, you know, maybe three months after that, you get in your prosthetics, all these things. Well, um, through the grace of whatever, uh, I was out of the hospital in five days. I was kicked out of rehab in 10 days because I had passed all the OT of wow. independence leaving. Uh, but again, you know, people want to say, oh, God, you're, what, a, what a guy, right? Well, it really wasn't me. It was the care that I was afforded, right, and, and the innovation around the surgical st- uh, surgery, the care that I was uh, post-op that I was given, the rehabilitation, the OT, the PT. Um, so I kind of knew that was contributing. But really what kicked into me is I didn't find out that 60% statistic until after I had gotten on my legs, Right. 60% of people who have an amputation do not receive a prosthetic. They don't have it. They're completely immobile. And, you know, there's a lot of ideas of why that is. Um, you know, some limbs can't receive a prosthetic device. Their current one now. A lot of things. But nobody really understands. So they just leave it alone. Well, I said, you know, that, that can't happen. So, and I've told my doctors in my community of care uh, that, look at why isn't my outcome and my care the standard for care for amputees. And you get lots of conventional or not conventional, but, you know, incumbent mindset. Well, I'm, I'm dangerous enough to be dumb enough to challenge all of that. Uh, and that's what Disabled Life Alliance are. So our first initiative is addressing this problem. And to dig into it, we may find things we don't know. You know, I'm, I'm completely open-minded. But if we can gear it that way, uh, you know, and, and I have a uh, feel that limb loss, it, we got to get rid of limb loss. It's not a loss. If, if that if that biological limb was removed, it was removed, you know, to make sure and ensure that your life was going on. It wasn't uh, it wasn't just uh, taken lightly. Uh, so it's a bunch of mindsets. So we set this initiative up and then because of what I had been doing for a long time, advising uh, uh, people with resources and intention around social impact. Um, I took a model that we kind of had around that and created Disabled Life Alliance, but I added one thing to it that was very, very important, and that was to get the community that's affected by the problem we're trying to solve to be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's hard. It's a delicate thing. Those journeys are personal. There are lots of different things, but, and we don't need another patient survey, right? So we use AI technology. We talked about it earlier, but we use a, a technology that allows a community building exercise that allows the community, because the theory is the, the community that's affected with the problem probably has solutions or ideas, doesn't have the resources or the 
uh, influence or whatever to make it a reality. So, so, so let's say I just had an amputation and I live in Columbus, Ohio, and mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, maybe there's a support group for me. Maybe there isn't, but how do I like, well, I guess help me understand how this AI right. gets me involved and hooked up with you. Well, Columbus, Ohio is a tough one for me because I went to Michigan, but I would still. Um, <laughs> Actually, I'm from Wisconsin, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, so we're, uh, it's it's to go through our website and to it's an it's an active uh, button, you know, activate button to uh, join community uh, uh, discussion, and it takes us and it's an iterative process where we're asking questions and probing and getting dialogue going, and all the dialogue is available to everybody, um, and so you can comment on other people's comments. Uh, and it's all anonymous, but it's it's and it's meant for us to take natural language processing and be able to extract consensus thinking and stuff and ask about that. So it's an iterative process. And then with the folks that were were our clients, if you will, the people with the intention of helping solve the problem, the resources to be able to put forth, it's a it's kind of a marriage, you know, of meeting in the middle, and therefore the allocations and the decisions that are made around those resources and which programs and how do we help those programs scale. And, but it takes the community to make us aware, right? My experience is my experience. If we have 5,000 of those shared, all of a sudden we start to get some ideas about really what's working and wow, what do we need to stay away from? Um, and, and that's the, the, the concept is, is that our hope is that, is that the community really does get involved and, and, shares their stories as they feel, feel, you know, everybody's journey is, is uh, different. And that's what we're trying to capture. And, and that's what's interesting because there are so many gaps in care as so many of our friends in our groups who have peripheral artery disease, once they end up limb different, where are the resources? I went on to one of the main sites that they're lobbyists, mainly on Capitol Hill, and they have all these resources supposedly on there. I mean, their website looks like, just one big page of tabs that you can click on. There's so many old tabs and nothing seems tangible or updated or, you know, practical for every person in every area. So you end up more lost than found. And so it feels as though when we're trying to help people who are limb different from PAD, we have no place to go to. We're actually the ones that are buying the shower chairs we're buying lighter wheelchairs we're the ones that are out there buying a stool for the kitchen we're helping with the finances to build a ramp into their apartment where are these resources amputation is nothing new right no and 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 you make a great point and and it is so difficult to discover those resources and those resources are typically philanthropically driven right through, through charities and through situations. Um, But there isn't a programmatic approach to it, if you will. And it it is, it is very, very difficult. It's very disappointing, but it's very difficult. So part of our, our initiative and what we're doing, we're also hopeful that, and we're actually partnering with uh, living with amplitude and the liner one, the liner one is a a company that uh, uh, provides a micro, uh, uh, microbial treatment for liners to help with the skin yeah. stuff. And uh, living with amplitude is a, a leading uh, uh, a journal, if you will, in the amputee community and they're building a resource center. So we're hoping everything we learn and our patients come uh, and express in our uh, community building exercise of discovery of programs that that all comes in because 
it's going to take a while for us to find out what the macro solution is to this problem so that a person that does go through an amputation has a clear pathway regardless of where they live what their status is what their economic capability what their insurance all these there is a pathway in their town if you will uh so we're going to building a resource center for that as well i guess i want to make sure i understand it correctly is is the notion that the the care after an amputation is I, I get that it's not standardized, but I mean, is it night and day in some situations for people such that they leave the hospital uh, one leg, you know, missing a leg and, and they have no uh, means of, of getting what they need for them? They have a file. They have a, a, a you know, a, a, a file with a bunch of papers in it. And here you go. So there's some of that. Yes, it is. It's it's very disparate. It's um, wow. and that's got to be solved. Right. Uh, yeah, of course. Just in age with technology and everything else. And of course, this is just the beginning. So much more launching an initiative, creating a matchmaking service for the patients who are expressing the gaps in care and then people who have the financial resources to help fill those gaps. I mean, that's a really great start and we're excited to see where that goes. But coming up right here on the Heart of Innovation, I want to see where you're going in the Boston Marathon. <laughs> so stay with us. We got to hear that story. That's next. Welcome back to The Heart of Innovation. For more on today's topic, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. Once again, here's Emmy Award-winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Paul, this has been an amazing show, great conversation, but something amazing is going to happen in a few weeks, right? You're running the Boston Marathon, and you did that before, too? I did. I am indeed. Um, yeah. And, and to finish off with the last, I, you know, anybody that's interested in this initiative about trying to close that gap, because that's one of many we hope to, you know, uh, we can direct them to our website and, and make sure they get in there. But yes, I um, I after my uh, one year anniversary, I call it uh, with my doctor, I got full clearance to do whatever I wanted to do, and I, I'm very fortunate. I've been able to do lots of different things uh, uh, that I've been missing: ocean swimming, surfing, a lot of stuff. Um, and as a tribute, because my surgery was uh, born out of the Boston bombing, uh, I said, "Oh, great! I'm going to go run the Boston Marathon." And I did it for two charities: the the two charities behind uh, uh, my successful outcome. And that was uh, I only had seven weeks on my running blade, so that was a uh, quite the endurance event. Um, but it was a very emotional event to be. On the course, uh, it's spectacular. It's amazing. And so I'm doing it again this year because it is the 10-year anniversary. And I am actually dragging uh, one of my sons, my younger one, my 25-year-old Peter, uh, into doing it with me. Although he is uh, not running with me. Um, uh, he's going to probably do it in half the time it will take me. But uh, um, And we're raising money for the same two foundations uh, that, that uh, have been so important to my family. Um, but yes, it's uh, you know it, it's great and it's um, it's just amazing because it does uh, it, it does go to what you can do right you know and the way you look at it uh, I I refer to my surgery as the gift it gave me my life back uh, liberated my life it took a ten year very dark period which is half of my son's lives and of where they saw their father's mortality frequently 
uh, and it rid away from that. It's just, it, it is kind of mind over matter, as my father used to say. And if you don't mind, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, but there's nothing like Boston. This will be my 20th marathon. Um, and just the crowds and the fellow runners. And as an adaptive, uh, you know, athlete, uh, you get a lot of cheering. Um, so I'm pretty excited about it. It's, a, it's an emotional time, but it's a great time. And uh, uh, yeah, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. I keep swear, I keep saying that this new lease on life is going to kill me because I keep dreaming all this stuff. So it's uh, it's pretty spectacular. And we have a quick question from Lawrence who wants to know what advice can you give family members who are going to be in the same situation and, and providing support for someone who is limb different? You know, it, it's tough, right? Each everybody has their own journey to to that place. Um, I encourage everybody to despite the headwinds of securing a prosthetic device or the right device or finding the right is to stay positive because the prosthetic community or the, the, the development is there. It, it is too difficult to go and get uh, at times, but it, it's just to try to remain positive, just find the silver lining. Uh, and really quickly, what is the website they can go to if they want to join the community and help influence the future of treatment for people who are limb different. It's disablelifealliance.com. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Paul, your story is inspiring, and I'm sure you're going to have updates from the Boston Marathon. They're on your site as well. Hopefully, maybe there's a blog um, that people can follow. But thank you so much. Your story is inspiring. You're helping so many people. Thank you from the bottom of our hearts for for joining us here on The Heart of Innovation. Absolutely. Thank you. We'll be cheering you on. I appreciate it. Listening to The Heart of Innovation with Emmy Award winning journalist Kim McNicholas and interventional cardiologist Dr. John Phillips. Our mission is to help patients live a better quality of life through comprehensive education, real time support, and high touch advocacy in partnership with thewaytomyheart.org and take a stand against amputation. Our purpose is to reduce the 1.5 million heart attacks and strokes and nearly 200,000 amputations annually. For more information regarding topics you've heard discussed on today's program, go to theheartofinnovation.org. That's theheartofinnovation.org. The Heart of Innovation is for educational and informational purposes only, and advice and views shared are not a substitute for medical advice from your own supervising physician. Do not act on any information provided in this show without the explicit consent from your own healthcare team. If you think you are having a medical emergency, call your local emergency number or go to the nearest hospital or emergency room. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.